Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. My name's Colton Tatham. I'm the West Campus pastor here at Journey Bible Church. And if you're new or hopefully listening online, uh, thanks for joining in. So uh, today we're going to be continuing again our sermon series about our call as the church um, and our calling to be all in for God and His ways. And throughout this series, uh, we've been unpacking our mission, our vision, our values here at Journey Bible Church. And again, you can see those in your bulletin. Uh, In case you missed any of our messages, our mission statement here is that we are journeying together, passionately following Jesus, and our vision statement is that we are a movement of Christ followers changing our community and the world. And Journey Bible Church is a church that believes in making more disciples and better disciples for Jesus Christ, and it starts with trusting and following Jesus together, and then trusting God to use us to transform ourselves and others into the image of Christ. Uh, We are also a Bible church, uh, that's kind of in the name, and we believe that the Bible teaches us values that create the best conditions for spiritual growth from God. When we practice these values, the church flourishes. When we don't practice these values, the church fades. Uh, We have ten values, and in our last two sermons, we surveyed the first set of five. And if you missed one of those messages, be sure to check them out on YouTube or listen on Spotify. Uh, In today's message, we're going to start unpacking the rest of our ten values as a church. Uh, In addition to being, number one, anchored in God's Word, two, empowered by God's Spirit, three, united in Christ, four, unconditional in love, and five, relentless in prayer, we are also striving to see six, sacrificial service, seven, radical generosity, eight, intentional discipleship, nine, courageous engagement, and ten, urgent faithfulness. So by sacrificial service, what we mean is that we believe the greatest is the servant who is selfless and sacrificial. By radical generosity, we mean that we are generous in every way because God is generous in every way. By intentional discipleship, we mean that we make disciples who make disciples and multiply disciple-making churches. By courageous engagement, we mean that we boldly engage our lost and broken world with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by urgent faithfulness, we believe that Christ will return soon, so we make him known to every family in our community, and his glory manifest to all peoples of the earth. Kind of like the Ten Commandments, there isn't a single one of these values that's more important than another. They are all important and cannot happen alone in a vacuum. They all lead to better conditions for spiritual growth from God. 
The two that we're going to focus on in today's message are sacrificial service and radical generosity. And then next week, we're going to look at the last three. So to help us do this, again, I kind of want us to first compare the world's pattern with the church's pattern. Uh, Let's compare the world's pattern of serving and giving with the church's pattern of serving and giving. And to help illustrate the world's pattern, uh, I want to start by sharing a story from 100 years ago. Uh, Many of you have probably seen or been to the Liberty Memorial right here in Kansas City, just by a raise of hands, see who's been there before. Just about everybody. It's a pretty great place to get some photos of the skyline. Uh, It's this large tower with a big fiery torch on top overlooking Union Station, and it's also the site of the National World War I Memorial and Museum. Now, over two million American soldiers were mobilized to fight in World War I, and over 100,000 of these soldiers gave their lives to help end that conflict. In light of their sacrificial service, Kansas City felt moved to memorialize those who had lost their lives in the conflict. Uh, If you don't know the story of how the Liberty Memorial was funded, it's actually pretty incredible. Uh, In an article from the New York Times a few years ago, a journalist wrote this. Uh, She said, two weeks after World War I ended on November 11, 1918, a group of Kansas City civic leaders decided to create a memorial to those who had served. A fund drive was held, and in less than two weeks, it raised $2 million. That was a lot of money back then. School children collected pennies. Uh, A large uh, lumber mogul, R.A. Long, led the drive and made the single largest donation, $70,000. A local politician named Harry S. Truman, who had returned from the war as an army captain, was also a contributor. Complete, unbridled patriotism created this, said the curator of the Liberty Memorial Museum of World War I. It is an architectural wonder, several times the size of the Lincoln and Jefferson memorials, and home to an unmatched collection of artifacts from the war. With a tower soaring 217 feet at the center, the Liberty Memorial became Kansas City's commanding landmark from a hillside overlooking Union Station. Although other monuments to World War I were built around the country, none are believed to approach this one in size and grandeur. Again, back in 1918, 1919, the Liberty Memorial Association led this citywide fundraiser. It included 83,000 contributors who collected more than $2.5 million in two weeks. And today, that's the equivalent of $37.3 million. That's incredible. The Liberty Memorial is a story of both sacrificial service and radical generosity from more than 100 years ago. What I want you to realize is is that this story is an example of the world's pattern of serving and giving. But let's fast forward 100 years later to the present. What does it look like to fundraise today? Well, today there are countless websites that you can go to for crowdfunding, Kickstarter, GoFundMe, Indiegogo, Patreon, more. Crowdfunding is now a multi-billion dollar industry, uh, and this too is the world's pattern of serving and giving. 
You know, you can fund projects uh, like this one, the minimum nativity. Yes, that's right, the minimum nativity. Don't be bothered by hand-carved, painted figurines when you can invest in tiny, minimalist Jenga blocks like these. I mean, look at these. Uh, they got words on them like Joseph, Mary, baby Jesus, and sheep printed right on there. Hmm, yeah, Merry Christmas. You know, crowdfunding has led to a lot of really good products and has helped a lot of people in need. And crowdfunding has dumped hundreds of millions of dollars into projects like the minimum nativity, so-called smart devices and get-rich-quick schemes. Whereas the Liberty Memorial is an amazing story of selfless service and altruism motivated by patriotism right here in Kansas City, crowdfunding is full of projects and people motivated by self-interest and greed. When we look at the world's pattern, these examples teach us that the world serves for good reasons and bad reasons. The world gives for good reasons and bad reasons. But as God's Word reveals, only the church serves and gives for eternal reasons. Again, the world serves and gives for good reasons and bad reasons. But only the church can serve and give for eternal reasons. The world can serve and give motivated by patriotism, altruism, capitalism, humanitarianism. But only the church can serve and give empowered by God's spiritual revivalism. The world can serve and give selflessly. The world can serve and give selfishly. But only the church can serve and give spiritually, eternally, and gracefully. The world's pattern may be good at times, and other times not so good. But the church's pattern will always be better than the world's. Now, when we look at Hebrews 10, the first part of the chapter serves as a warning to those in the church who had decided to shrink back from following Jesus. Jesus never said following him would always be easy, and to some in the church, they had begun to abandon their call to follow. Even so, God's word has two reasons here for us not to shrink back from sacrificial service and radical giving. If you have your Bibles, follow along as I read in Hebrews 10, and we're going to look at verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Verse 32 invites the church to recall its former days, to recall its history, its legacy, its past. Now, the first reason that the church doesn't shrink back is because it has been enlightened. And the second reason we see that the church doesn't shrink back is because it has a better possession. So let's unpack these two reasons one at a time. So what exactly is enlightenment? 
What does it mean in verse 32 when it says, after you were enlightened? Well, I think it may be a helpful way to visualize what enlightenment is like in the Bible is to first imagine yourself as an unlit candle. Uh, Imagine that you, me, everybody in the room, the whole human race, uh, we're just a bunch of dark, unlit, flameless candles that are waiting to be lit. Now, candles don't just spontaneously light themselves. If you hold a candle and wish for it to, you know, to start burning, that's not going to happen. Candles have to be lit by fire coming to the wick. This really here is the big difference between Christian enlightenment and enlightenment in other religions. You see, in other religions, you must serve and sacrifice, and give, and meditate, and if you do enough of it, then you might attain enlightenment. Again, you focus on that candle, you try to light it, but I'll tell you what, it's never going to burn. Christianity is the opposite. Enlightenment comes from God to you. The spiritual flame first comes from God, not from ourselves. Christian enlightenment happens the moment that you surrender yourself to Jesus in faith as Lord and Savior. Jesus is the one who spiritually lights the candle of our souls so that we can take the light of the gospel to others. When Hebrews refers to the church as having been enlightened, it means that they've received the light of God's grace to see the truth of the gospel for salvation. If we look carefully at these verses, we can see that an enlightened church doesn't shrink back in several ways. First, the enlightened church has the endurance to struggle for God. In verse 32, God's word says, After you were enlightened, you endured. Now, endurance is a spiritual virtue. It's a good thing flowing from enlightenment. It's the ability to last. It's the ability to not give up. Endurance is good, but the kind of endurance these Christians experience was painful. It was a struggle. Hebrews says, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Here we see that the kind of endurance produced by the light of Christ is the kind of endurance that doesn't shrink back from struggling doesn't shrink back from public persecution, and doesn't shrink back from suffering with others. Beyond endurance, though, these enlightened Christians also had the compassion to give like no one else gives. The church didn't show compassion on just anyone. In verse 34, we are told they had compassion on criminals in prison. In Roman times, Many inmates were forced to pay for their own basic amenities, or they would die without them. Commentator Peter O'Brien says that the compassion that these Christians showed went beyond faithful acts of service like prayer and care. Their compassion was financial. Peter O'Brien writes that their compassion no doubt included 
supplying food, water, and clothing, without which those in prison would have died. Later, the author of Hebrews will urge his listeners to demonstrate this concrete compassion again to those in prison in chapter 13. Now, the enlightened church we see here serves with its hands, and it serves by praying with its voice, but it also releases its treasures to others. Not just to those who are worthy, but we see here even to those who are unworthy. Lastly, in these verses, we're told the enlightened church has joy in loss. Uh, Verse 34 is pretty remarkable. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard enough time keeping my cool when I get a bill in the mail. Um, or a bill that's trying to overcharge me, or a bill for something I've never ordered. It drives me crazy. Let alone what I think I'd uh, maybe describe myself as joyful if my car, my wallet, or my phone got stolen. But, you know, that's what we see here. The enlightened church here. We see joyful Christians in what should be a joyless situation. Even in the face of loss, plundering and robbery. Not even the world can steal the true joy of the enlightened church. When we come to Hebrews 10.34, this is where we discover the second reason the church doesn't shrink back from sacrificial service and radical generosity. Verse 32 tells us that the church is enlightened. The church has received the light of God's grace and truth to see and do His will. Now, in verse 34, we're then told the church has a better possession. Uh, Look with me in your Bibles there, verse 34. Halfway through the verse, it says, Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and then this here, he's quoting Habakkuk, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, and preserve their souls. Now, I think there's a little bit of wordplay going on here in verse 34. Verse 34 depicts the enlightened church's property being plundered. But the secret to the church's joy is the knowledge that we have a better possession and an abiding one. That phrase abiding means that the better possession that the church has is a possession that is lasting, secure, thief-proof, unplunderable. Treasures may be stolen from God's people, but this better possession is kept, kept safe for God's people. It is unstealable. This better possession is salvation itself. So what is it that enables the enlightened church to bear hardship, to bear persecution? Well, it's our better possession. It's the heavenly reward of salvation in Jesus Christ. 
Uh, Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry observes five reasons salvation from God is a possession better than anything else. Uh, First, he says, salvation has real value, not fading value. The joy of salvation in heaven is a possession of real weight and worth. All things here in this world, they're just shadows. Money, houses, cars, stocks. You know, they may be value for you know, some, some purpose in this life, but unlike salvation, they are of no value in the life to come. Second, salvation has accumulating rewards, not diminishing returns. We already saw this in Hebrews 10, but there's an encouragement here to endure in the faith for our reward in heaven. Matthew Henry writes that this better possession will make rich amends for all we can lose and suffer here in this life. In heaven, we shall have a better life, a better estate, better liberty, better society, better hearts, better work, everything better. Third, salvation will never be lost. Again, the wordplay here in Hebrews 10 reminds us that this better possession is an abiding one, a lasting one, one that isn't going anywhere and it's here to stay. The enemies of the church in Hebrews may have taken their worldly treasures, but no enemy can take the enlightened church's spiritual treasure in Christ. Fourth, salvation will never run out. You can overcharge a credit card, You can default on a loan, but your salvation can never be overspent because it's an enduring possession. It's a possession of eternal worth. Henry says it will outlive time and run parallel with eternity. We can never spend it, and our enemies can never take it from us as they do our earthly goods. And lastly, fifth, Salvation is always useful. You see, our salvation isn't like a life insurance policy that only pays out when you're dead. Our better possession is just as useful for the present as it is for the future. Salvation is a better possession that gives us assurance in doubt, confidence in fear, patience in suffering, hope in tragedy, and joy in loss. Salvation is a better possession, and it is better than anything that we can gain from this world. What our better possession means, then, is that when others shrink back, the church moves forward. Again, when others shrink back, the true church, the true people of God, keep pressing forward. The world may serve and give, for good reasons and bad reasons, but only the church serves and gives and keeps moving forward for eternal reasons. You know, as followers of Jesus, we serve and give based upon the overwhelming gifts we've already received from God. The church has been given enlightenment to know and to do God's church or God's truth. Uh, the church has also been given a better possession to experience God's salvation. 
We don't shrink back then from sacrificial service because we've been enlightened to do God's word. And we don't shrink back then from radical generosity because we already have a better possession of eternal worth. The church is Christ's community of faith living with eternity in view and preserving our souls through endurance in the present. Hebrews 10.39 But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hebrews 10 reminds us that we should serve uh, sacrificially and give radically because God has shown us the legacy of His faithfulness to the church in the past. God has done the impossible before, and God will do the impossible again. The church has the most valuable possession in the world. We have a spiritual relationship with God's Son. But, you know, there's a problem. The problem is that maintaining the body is more appealing than straining the body. Again, maintaining the body is more appealing than straining the body. Now, let me explain what I mean here. Um, I was having lunch um, at Midwestern's National for the Church Conference this week. Uh, I went there with Antoine, Jacob, Nicholas, and some other pastors here from Journey. It was a fun time. Uh, if you don't know Antoine again, get to know him after the service if you didn't have time to chat with their family during the connection time. Uh, Antoine, again, he's a resident partner with Macedonia Baptist, um, and it's so awesome to have all you guys visiting here today. But, you know, we were having lunch at Chipotle, and the subject of uh, diet and exercise came up. And Antoine, he just blew my mind. Uh, he shared this absolutely brilliant strategy for health and fitness, and he called it maintaining. Yes, maintaining. You know, if you want to be a fitness maintainer, apparently it's pretty easy, and there's only two steps. Step one, eat whatever you want. Step two, exercise sometimes to feel good about it. I know this is pretty advanced stuff, so in case you're taking notes, I'll say those two steps again. Step one, eat whatever you want. Step two, exercise sometimes to feel good about it. You know, the challenge, though, with maintaining is if you add step three. Step three is using a weight scale to measure your success. You know, Sometimes that can get distracting and keep you from becoming the fitness paragon of maintaining that you were meant to become. If you really want to be good at maintaining, don't measure your results and progress. Just guess your results and progress. Throw away that scale and you'll be a maintaining fitness expert in no time. Now, I'm not a fitness guru, but... Even I know you need to strain the body if you want to train the body. The same is true for the church. Many Christians treat preserving their soul, as it says in Hebrews 10.39, like a two-step maintaining fitness program. Hebrews 10 is here to shatter our delusions the all-in Christian woman doesn't maintain her service. The Christian man who doesn't shrink back doesn't maintain his generosity. 
There is no straining in maintenance. There is no sacrifice in maintenance. There is no radical in maintenance. There is no faithfulness in maintenance. Maintenance is average, and maintenance is stuck. So don't end up a maintaining Christian. Discipline yourself in faith to become a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. You know, as Christians, God has called us to be ambassadors and representatives for Christ to the nations. And if we're to show the nations what sacrificial service looks like, if we're to show the nations what radical generosity looks like, you know, then it's maybe not a bad idea to know what service and generosity actually look like on the nation's terms. So, you know, we opened our message with two examples, the memorial and the Kickstarter. But as we begin to wind our message down, I want to give us two numbers. Uh, The first number is 50. 50. 50 is the average number of hours an American adult will volunteer in a year. That averages out to be about one hour per week. Of course, there are all sorts of ways that people serve and volunteer their time. Churches, schools, sports teams, food kitchens, prisons, shelters, hospitals, you name it. But the reason why the number 50 is important is because it tells us what our nation perceives average service to look like. That means that to most Americans, serving just one hour a week probably won't seem all that sacrificial. Serving just one hour a week will more likely seem pretty ordinary and pretty far from extraordinary. Now, I do want to take a moment here to celebrate many, many of you that are here on the West Campus launch team. Many of you serve way more than one hour a week. Uh, here at church, here at our schools, here with our community partners, and some of you aren't even here today because you're serving uh, on missions overseas. You know, I, I know that there are those of you who get here extra early, especially on the portable and worship team, to set up. You stay here late to tear down. Uh, all of you guys are amazing, so please keep this up. Don't, don't hear this as a rebuttal. Hear this as an encouragement to keep pressing on. But I want you to also remember that there is a second number uh, that we need to know, and this second number is 2.5. 2.5. 2.5 is the percent of total income that most Muslims give away each year. Uh, Islam bases its religious practices on the five pillars, and the fifth pillar, I believe, is called zakat, and it's the practice of giving alms, tithes, back to the community. The average American, whether they're religious or not, actually gives about the same percentage of their total income away to charitable organizations as well every year. My point here is that if the world's religious people and the world's non-religious people all give about 2.5% of their income to charity, what would it look like for Jesus' followers to be considered radical in the world's sight? You know, our next-door neighbor, uh, he, they're, they're a big Pakistani family. They're Muslims, and they immigrated to America over a few decades ago. 
Um, I, about a year ago, I was actually talking to the dad, and he proudly shared with me, it's kind of like that uh, uh, scene in the, like an old sitcom. We were out in the backyard, there was the fence, and we were just talking to each other over the fence, and he was proudly sharing with me about how his uh, zakat offerings go to support the construction of hospitals and refugee care for people in Pakistan. Uh, it was really cool, and I really loved how passionate he was to you know, describe his giving and where it was going. I kid you not, though, in the same month uh, that I had talked to my neighbor, uh, I remember coming across a Christian, a, a young Christian man. Uh, this Christian felt like no church was worthy enough, faithful enough, or good enough to receive his tithes and offerings. Uh, he would vocally tell others about his refusal to give for all these extraneous reasons, and eventually, you know what, he stopped attending church. I share these two examples because you have the passionate Muslim and you have the proud Christian. And I share them as a, examples as a reminder that the world is always watching us. We are representatives of God's kingdom to the world. And comfortable maintaining does not represent our Lord and Savior very well. The temptation to maintain our service and maintain our giving will always be strong. We may even be tempted, like this proud Christian, to begin withholding our service or withholding our gifts. But when we do that, we don't just miss out on the opportunity to be used by God as a blessing. God forbid, we may actually misrepresent Christ and His kingdom to the world. Does it sound very sacrificial if a Christian only serves as much as an average American serves? Just think about that. Does it sound very radical if a Christian only gives what an average American gives? Average does not sound very sacrificial or very radical to me. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, the temptation to maintain traps many, many Christians from developing sacrificial and radical lives of faith like Jesus. And you know, the power to overcome the temptation to maintain your service and maintain your generosity comes from remembering what we've already received from God. The reason that we don't shrink back in our service is because we've already been enlightened by Christ. And the reason that we don't shrink back in our generosity is because we've already received a better possession in Christ. If you already have the most valuable thing there is to possess in the world, then what would be holding you back from going all in for Jesus? Now, some of you may need a place to start. Uh, maybe your giving has been irregular with the COVID pandemic. That's understandable. Or maybe it's far less radical than you think it should be. Or maybe you've never given before. Or maybe you're the kind of person that just has the tendency to drop out of your volunteer commitments. Maybe, maybe that's where you're at. If God really is who he reveals himself to be in the Bible, what do you think would happen in your life if you moved from average service and average giving to sacrificial service and radical generosity. 
If you want to stir up your soul for the ways of Christ, few things can be better than becoming a more faithful servant and a cheerful giver. If serving and giving are weaker areas for you, then here's where I suggest you start. First, start in prayer. Start in prayer. And then reflect in prayer about these two questions. Ask God to answer these questions for you. First, ask yourself, if our nation serves one hour a week, what would it look like for me to be sacrificial to serve Jesus more faithfully? And then ask yourself, if our nation gives 2.5%, what would be radical for me to give generously to the body of Christ? The way that God might lead you to answer these questions may be different from the way that God leads somebody else in this room uh, to answer these questions. So pray, and then commit to a plan of action to reach a goal that would require faith from God to accomplish. Now, I know there are also many, many, many faithful servants here in our church and here in this room. Uh, some here, I know, sacrifice several hours every week for the church. Uh, and there are some here who see 10% as a minimum for radical giving. Journey Bible Church West and so much more, kind of like our report from the Omo Valley in Ethiopia, those things wouldn't be possible without a lot of your guys' faithfulness and others' faithfulness in our church. So I just want to first off say thank you. Uh, I know that many of you could share testimony after testimony about how God has used your service and giving not just to transform other people's lives, but to transform your own life through being faithful. Now, if you're beyond the starting line, like if you're a follower of Jesus who is already growing and serving and giving, uh, then here are a few ways to consider energizing your faithfulness even more. First, consider profits to profits. Consider taking your profits from the world and using them to profit the advancement of the kingdom. Do this by prayerfully making a plan to grow your giving by growing your income. You know, perhaps you need to determine a percentage of your income that you plan to give, a percentage of your income that you plan to live off of, and a percentage of your income that you plan to save. Figure out what all of that is, and then maybe make a commitment each year that if God were to allow you to make more than you'd expect, you would give it all away. In faith, pray for God to turn your profits into resources that could financially energize new and existing works for the body of Christ. To me, that sounds radical. Something else you could consider praying about is doubling your service. Yes, that's right, doubling your service. For every hour you serve, you serve two hours. Now, some of you hearing that are like, that is impossible with my schedule, or you might be thinking, what in the world are you saying, you crazy pastor? How in the world do you go like serve that much and also still have a job? And you know, you're probably right. This is crazy. But one of the best ways to double the impact of your service is not by sacrificing more time. It's by recruiting more people to serve with you. Turn one hour of service into two hours of service by recruiting somebody to serve alongside you. It's one of the reasons why I think Jesus sent them out in twos. 
Now, one of our goals here real practically at the West Campus is to double uh, our size from 50 attenders to 100 attenders. Um, on October 24th, we're going to have a free brunch and learn in here uh, during the 1030 service hour. Um, maybe some of you here know some people in the church or friends or the community that I don't know. And maybe they're teetering on the fence about joining the team. Uh, start praying for that person or that family that comes to mind today. Invite them to come check out the service and then strong arm them into joining the launch team. So some of you guys have much stronger arms than me. So uh, I, I do a little too much maintaining, but some of you out there know. I think, I think you probably strong arm, like you could probably take your service and multiply it by five if you really wanted to. So lastly, uh, don't forget to pass it on. Uh, for those of you who are parents and grandparents, um, or for those of you that are discipling someone to follow Jesus, don't forget to pass on what God has already taught you about serving and giving for his glory. Uh, one of the ways that you can increase your impact for the kingdom is simply by teaching and showing others how to increase their impact for the kingdom. You know, it can sometimes be uncomfortable to talk about money with people. And, you know, money and our generosity should be a private act of worship between us and God. Even so, don't forget to pass on the good stories about what God has taught you in your own faithfulness, especially when you're passing it on to your family and to the next generation. Ultimately, we serve sacrificially because Jesus came to serve us sacrificially. And we give radically because Jesus radically gave his life for us to be saved. Sacrificial service with our time and our talents and radical generosity with our treasure are just two amazing ways that we get to reflect the image of Christ for the glory of God to the world. So let's not maintain, let's strive to be all in passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are the everlasting Lord and heavenly King. You are also the good Father who gives good gifts. God, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, your treasured heir, to be our Savior from sin and death. God, we confess that we far too often find ourselves caught up with worldly attachments and maintaining when we should be straining our faith. Lord, when in Jesus you have given us a far better possession than anything we could help to find. God, you give abundant eternal life. You overflow with generosity and grace, even when we don't deserve it. God, so please sanctify our hearts and our minds to release our time in this world and to release our treasures from this world back to you. Because, God, we acknowledge that everything we have ultimately is a gift from you in the first place. God, may our sacrificial service and radical generosity be acceptable in your sight. And God, by your Spirit, help us to serve and give with greater faith. And Lord, through our labor, we ask that you would give the growth. Blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and strength be unto you, our God, forever and ever. In the name of Jesus, all your people said, Amen. 
This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.